0: Good morning. Welcome to Plainfield Bible. Before we dive into the very serious nature of studying God's Word, I'm going to do something I don't normally do. I bring up sport and athletics from the pulpit. I find that to be, um, I don't know, it turns my stomach usually when guys do it, so I'm going to do that, but I, I do it to bring up a story uh, the, the man who, who uh, married my wife and I, Pastor Swanson, he was a big Kansas State fan. He grew up in Kansas, and um, uh, this was 30 years ago before Mindy and I were married, and uh, the Kansas State had lost the Big 12 championship, and I, came, I saw him the next day, I think it was after he had preached a sermon, and he seemed a little despondent, and I said, oh, how you doing? He said, Jesus is still Lord, he said. So I say all of that for you Purdue fans, and I, I say that only to say I compliment you for coming and showing the love of God, knowing that Jesus is still Lord, and then mingling and fellowshipping with your fellow Hoosier fans here. I just have a lot of respect for you Indiana Christians, you're just a guy from Illinois that sees that. So all of all of that craziness aside, I don't normally like to do that, but... And my son is here, a Boilermaker himself, this morning, so um, I had to say that. But before we dive into the Word of God again today, you know it is my habit. I do not want to handle this Word without, although we have spoken to the Lord many times this morning, I want to speak to Him on our behalf. As I open up the Word, I find that to be serious. So pray with me one more time. Heavenly Father, we love you. We praise your name, and we do take your Word seriously sports and things that we entertain ourselves with are secondary and they're not even close to being nearly as important as what you teach us from your word what your holy spirit convicts us to do the glories and the beautiful nature of the promises that you've given us the things that you saved us from and for and understanding our unworthiness of it all we're in wonder of you. We praise your name, the almighty God who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And as we think of the wonder of that and we're we're basking in the glow of what your word is going to say to us today. I pray that it makes an impact on us. That it isn't just eloquence of your word or the intelligence that we're gaining or knowledge that we're picking up, but that you convict us to do something. With this, that you move in us, that, our, that the grace that you bestow upon us, that we'll see today you lavish upon us, affects our daily lives. That we are evidently completely different than what we once were, and the clear distinction from what we are as redeemed compared to the world that is lost, so that we can do our very job which is to proclaim the truth. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this word that we are prepared to look at today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So today, as we continue to look at John chapter one, and it is taking us a while to get through John chapter one, I will say that as you look through this, I honestly thought, how am I gonna get through one verse today? Jeffrey Blackburn yesterday, as we were talking, I heard him mention that sometimes he just struggles and and, and meditates and fights through one verse. And I, I was thinking in my head, yeah, I've been dealing with that all week. As I prepare this sermon, it's very difficult to get through just one verse because it's all about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and there is so much depth and richness to even the first verse that we're going to look at. However, I am going to cover more than one verse, so buckle up. We are going to go through this one verse at a time. And so here's what we're going to see today. Certainly our theme today is grace upon grace. Think of it this way, grace to the maximum, grace to the perfect, grace to the eternal. And that's what we'll see today. But first we cover with something that that we honestly saw the opposite of in, in our number one, if you happen to be here. It's kind of fascinating as I was watching that. And I've of course seen the series and I knew where we were going, but My preparation for the the sermon today was based solely on the text, not on Sunday school. And yet you are going to hear so many of the same scriptures and reminders, promises, truths from God's word based on the deity of Christ, who he is. And we'll see that one more time. We'll look very briefly at John the Baptist. Pastor has already covered that, but verse 15, 16 and 17, grace and truth. Grace and truth, they're coupled together. They are intertwined. They are definitively both true and both grounded in the Word of God, which is truth. And then this idea of making him known, where we get the terminology exegesis. So that's where we're going to head today. That's where we're going to be today. And before we get into our actual text, I'd like to make a connection from last week. We're going to see this twice today. So you will see this passage now, and I will bring it up again later, to bring this all together, but this is in Ephesians chapter one verses five through eight. to give you kind of a context of this, what peter is or Paul is doing here, uh, what Paul is doing here is he is establishing for us uh, the idea of our position with Christ, but the position of Christ himself, who he really is, what he has done for us. I want you to think of this in light of what Peter says to us as we consider what Peter's words were in in 2 Peter 1. He says, his divine power, Jesus Christ's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's through salvation. And as we talked about last week being adopted, as we'll see here in Ephesians chapter 1 in just a moment, this divine power has granted everything we need to live out this life for for Christ. And this is to his own glory and excellence. I'm, I'm talking about Peter's words now inspired by the Holy Spirit, in verse 4 of that same passage, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that we can become partakers of the divine nature. The reason I mention that before we go into this text is you saw that misquoted in Hour 1 today. That somehow this divine nature must mean that we're little gods. We are God. That we can be Jesus. That we are no different than him. We're just doing it wrong if we're not quite in that same level of power or divinity as Christ. That is heresy. That is heresy. And although that wasn't part of my sermon as I heard that, we need to have our hearts and our minds right with who we are and who God is. This is what happened to us if we're in Christ. Now, in Ephesians 1, it says this, He, Jesus, predestined us for adoption to himself. Adoption brought us into the family, so much of what Peter just said. As sons, through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That's where we ended last week. This was what he did. This wasn't of yourself. You didn't have the will or the power or the desire in all truth to pursue the Lord. He pursued you. To the praise of his glorious grace. For his grace, because of his grace, and that grace gives him glory. We'll see this unpacked today. With which he has blessed us in the beloved In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our our trespasses. This is paid the debt. We think of this word in particular in 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 this idea of redeemed in the Greek is you paid in full what was owed because your life was in debt. In other words, you owed everything that you couldn't pay beyond what you could pay and redeemed in the Greek term is you paid that price. He paid that price rather. For our sins, something you could not pay. According to the riches of his grace, we see grace come back again, which he lavished upon us, overflowing with grace in all wisdom and insight. He did that because of his glory, and we're going to see that today. So, as we think of last week and we bring that around to this week, this is our connector. This is what's going on. Who would have the capacity to do something like this? Who could predestine you, adopt you, pay for your sins, pursue you? His will would drive this. Who could do such a thing? Well, that's what we'll see in John chapter 1. So turn to John chapter 1, and let's take a look at this text. We'll read it all full through, 14 through 18, that I'll cover today, and then we'll go verse by verse. John chapter 1, 14 through 18. Who could accomplish such a feat? And I know I'm not spoiling any, anything for you. You know who this is. But God wants us to see this in his word today. So who could do this? Coming off of what we considered last week. Verse 14, if you're there by now. John 1, 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is the focus that we're going to have in this particular verse. I want you to notice something. I have highlighted, you can see why this verse is, is so hard to get through. Look at all of the things that I've highlighted. The Word became flesh. Christ, God incarnate, took on flesh. And then He dwelt among us. We'll see this very specifically tabernacled with us. And we have seen His glory. His glory was revealed through His life, His miracles, His fulfillment of prophecy his resurrection but even at the mount of transfiguration and then this only son or only begotten son which we also heard spoken of earlier today look at all that's built into one verse if you think how can you struggle through one verse because god's word begins to define this for us and as we seek and look through his word and it begins to defend these points it's very rich and it's very clean so as we looked at this as we look through this I couldn't find a better quote than this one, and I'll tell you, I wish I could give this to you with a, a nice, eloquent accent, but you're going to have to settle for the country boy uh, American accent that I have for you, a little country bumpkin. But imagine Alistair saying it, it will sound so much better. But here's what he says about this particular verse, and you can see what I mean. Verse 14 proclaims Jesus Christ as the incarnate God. If the prologue is the key to the gospel, then 14 is the prologue to the prologue. Up to this point, it would have been possible for the reader to have taken the word to refer it to some great cosmic principle. But here, in one short, sharp, shattering statement, John unveils the great idea of the heart of Christianity, that the very word of God took flesh for man's salvation. There's a great mystery in this. That Christ became what he was not, a man, without ever ceasing to be what he was, the Almighty God. In contrast to what you heard this morning from false teachers, and as he walked through those streets, the infinite became finite. God Almighty could be seen. You could look into his eyes. The unapproachable became approachable. The invisible became tangible. The transcendent became imminent. And although he is no longer here physically, this is still true for us today. You can know him. Pastor made reference to this about what Christ's reaction to the false believer, the fake, the one who was self-righteous in his his own mind of how he could create salvation and what would Jesus say to him? What will Jesus say to him? Depart from me, I never knew you. Intimately know you. You workers of lawlessness, your own self-righteousness is filthy rags is what he is saying there. You can know him. And he can know you. And when you encounter the Christ that we have dictated for us in Scripture, that is outlined for us, explained to us, illuminated for us in God's Word, and you encounter that, as I mentioned last week, when you hear the true gospel of Jesus Christ, it will wreck the sinner. Now the decision to to put their faith in Christ, this is something driven by the Holy Spirit as the Father draws you, but you must believe and you must repent. And this is what we see today. This is still true today. You can know who he is so that he knows who you are. Okay, so as we see this, let's unpack this going back. Let's start with the word became flesh. The very first thing that I highlighted here. This most critical of all statements, that the word became flesh. Here's a good way to look at this. Philippians chapter 2. Here's the way we need to think of this. And I love the way Paul uses this. You need to have this mind among yourselves. We need to all as believers think this way, unified in this, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this because this was explained very well in hour one, but some of you weren't there. And I want you to understand here, this doesn't mean he was reaching for something, that Jesus was somehow trying to grasp and get a hold of something he didn't have. No, no, no. This, isn't, this, is, this simply means that he didn't hold on to what he did have. The glories of heaven. He didn't release his divinity. He didn't become a less God when he came here. He gave up some of the glory and the beauty and the incredible nature of being in, in heaven, in paradise, at the right hand of the Father. Now, let me tell you, he's there now, as we'll see unpacked. But he came and left that for our sake, but most specifically for his glory. Don't think that he somehow lost being God or gave up being God, as you heard this morning from false teachers. That did not happen. But he didn't hold on to it. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Kind of think of this this idea is that he literally walked and talked here in a human body. If he cut his arm, it was cut. If he stubbed his toe, it hurt. When he was on the cross, don't think that somehow supernaturally he didn't feel the pain. He felt it all. Why does he tell us to do this in remembrance of me? So you understand the depths of your sin and the greatness of his love for you. It should make you emotional. It does me. That your Savior felt it all. He knew what was going on. He went through the, the, the ups and downs of life in perfection very different than us. He wasn't just a man that did it right. He was God-man, and he was the only one that could do it right. And praise be to God, he came and he did that. He was in our likeness. He was being found in human form. He looked like a man, but he humbled himself being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, even that. Keep in mind, folks, he wrote this He wrote the prophecies. He wrote Isaiah 53. You're saying, Isaiah wrote that down 700 B.C. No, no. He was inspired by God himself. The unified, triune God knew what he was writing when he wrote Psalm 22. Jesus knew what he was doing when he said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He pointed everybody to Psalm 22. Read this. I'm fulfilling this. He knew what he was doing. He understood what he was doing. Even death on a cross He wrote that on purpose, intentionally. He could have written to die anyway. He wanted to show you his love for you. He wanted to show you the depths of your sin. He wanted to show you the greatness of his grace. Therefore, God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This will be an overriding theme today in this sermon to the glory of God the Father. For his glory, the truth infused with grace that's delivered in the gospel is for his glory. That was a long time for that one, and I I know it's tough, but that's so beautiful. Here's another one that we're going to look at. Hebrews chapter 11 for just a moment. Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We see God revealed in the Old Testament. We don't unhitch from it. We see Christophanies, we see prophecies, we see symbolism. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Have have we seen that unpacked in the last several weeks? He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint. This is the same Greek language they use to talk about a, a carbon copy, a perfect copy of a coin. It's an exact imprint. They use this word to talk about etching into into steel permanently. That's the exact imprint. This is perfectly the same. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purifications for his sins. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is exactly what we're dealing with here. We are dealing with God incarnate. You encounter Jesus as who he is, not what you make him to be or wish him to be, but he is God in the flesh. And then what do we see? He dwelt among us. We see this particular Greek word, and it's a little unusual, skinu, to tabernacle with, to pitch a tent with, to be in fellowship with. This same sort of word is used when we go back to Deuteronomy. And we'll see this as we go forward. We'll go backwards and then forwards. We're actually going to go forward, then backwards, which is kind of an unusual thing to do. But consider it like back to the future. So when we look at this, we see this consistency in God's desire to know you. So you heard this from the jump, pastor mentioned it earlier, to know him means something. And that requires fellowship. You think about the people that you know, that you're in fellowship with, you talk to them, they talk to you. You love them, they love you. And there's some interaction between them. And this idea of of him being a tabernacle with us, or tabernacling with us, is Jesus is not Abolishing the Old Testament, he's fulfilling it. He's a perfect fulfillment of the tabernacle. He's a perfect fulfillment of the temple, which remember, he spoke to the Pharisees and they didn't understand if you tear down this temple, three days later, I'll rise it up again. They they had no idea what he was talking about. But he's now the temple. We know ultimately in the eternal state, there'll be no temple, there'll be no need for it. God Himself, Jesus Christ, will be the light and the temple. There will be no need for it. So we see the ultimate understanding of this. But the idea of fellowship, this skino this idea, we see in Revelation. So you see going forward before we go back, the idea of dwelling amongst us. In Revelation 7, I think this is so beautiful, the heart of the Lord. During the tribulation period, there will be people who come to know the Lord, and they will have a very difficult time being a Christian during that terrible, terrible seven years. And that last three and a half, Christ himself says this will be the worst time in human history, but he still has a heart for the souls of mankind, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, Joel chapter 2, will be saved as they see this. And some will, but they will, many of them die. The context of Revelation 7 are the martyrs of this tribulation period. Notice when they're in the presence of the Lord. Look at this. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. These are these martyred, these souls of those who have, were slain for the name of Christ during the tribulation. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his, back to that same word, schino, tabernacle, presence. He'll shelter them. He'll be with them. He'll have fellowship with them. They'll be in the presence of the Lord. Notice what Paul tells us, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Paul struggled with the concept of being here and doing the work of the Lord. Knowing what was coming was so much greater. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And Paul had an understanding of that maybe greater than most because he was, able to, he was privy to that. He was able to, to see that. Revelation 21, near the end, this of course in, involves us. And we think of this, this is just on the cusp of the new heaven and the new earth. That's the chapter of Revelation 21. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, be with us. And they will be his people, and God himself will will be with them as their God. You see, this is the goal, is that we could be in his presence. And we can't get past these passages without understanding, without Jesus, this isn't possible. It's not possible. And what do you mean by that? Well, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33. I want you to see how beautiful this is, and we're going to look at Exodus twice today. We're going to go to Exodus in two different occasions, same chapter actually, but we go to Exodus chapter 33, and I've got a marker there, so I got there faster, I'll give you a second. Exodus 33. We see that God wanted to do this in the past and did do this in part in the past. In Exodus 33, we see a well, kind of an insight into the relationship Moses had with God. And the people were observing this. I want you to note when we read this, the people's reaction. Okay, So this is what it says. And this is before the tabernacle was established. This is kind of an interlude in the midst of... Uh, kind of to give you context here, in the midst of, the, of, of Moses getting the Ten Commandments, coming down and seeing the people kind of partying and reveling and, and then throwing down the tablets and all of those things, in the interlude of this, in chapter 34 he gives him more tablets, but in the interlude of this it talks about his relationship, Moses' relationship with the Lord, really before the tabernacle. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, verse 7 if I didn't tell you, and he called it in the tent he called it the tent of meeting so it was before the tabernacle and everyone who sought the lord would go out of the tent of meeting which is the outside the camp whenever moses went out to the tent all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent and watch moses until he had gone into the tent they're just observing all of this notice and when moses entered the tent the pillar of of cloud Shekinah glory would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses and when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent all the people would rise up and worship each one at his tent door thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend when Moses turned again into the camp his assistant Joshua the son of Nun, a young man would do would not depart from the tent now that's interesting it's kind of neat right? But who's that involving? Moses. It's Moses. And everybody else is observing it from a distance. Oh, that's pretty cool stuff. Jesus came so you can have that relationship with him. What did Jesus say to his apostles in the upper room? No greater love than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. And I call you friend if you do what I command you. If you're one of mine, now keep in mind, that is not earning its salvation. If you're my son or daughter, if you are my child, you're going to be motivated by the Holy Spirit to do the things that I ask you to do. And you're my friend. You can have that relationship to know God. It's not just observing someone else. It's not just that. We look at Deuteronomy 34, very, very next page, depending on your Bible, 34.10. Notice it says this about Moses. There's not risen a prophet since Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Nobody else had that relationship with him, but Moses did. What a beautiful thing. Because of Jesus Christ, you can. You can know him. He can know you. If you repent and believe, when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, this relationship can be yours. And not only that, this will be physically realized for you someday. Maybe today. Maybe today the Lord will return and your faith will be sight. This is because of Jesus Christ, not because of you. You can see how this, this really makes an impact on that word, dwelling among us, how this really connects the dots for us. As we look at Colossians 2, 8 through 10, let's make a connection. This, these next two phrases, dwelt among us and then seeing his glory. I don't want to spend a lot of time in Colossians 2, but it says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Now let me pause in the middle of this. Last week I took you to Colossians 1 which shows the deity of Christ. See what Paul's doing in chapter 1. You need to know for sure who Christ was, God incarnate. Don't be taken captive by empty philosophies. I'll warn us of the same thing. We need to be careful about that, lest ye, we too fall, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. A lot of philosophy, ideas out there. In him, Jesus Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of it. This is for him. He, is, he was here amongst us. He is going to come back, as we heard in the creed this morning. We believe this to be true. And all the fullness, the whole fullness of God, dwells in him. And so this is something you will see his glory with your own eyes. Think, okay, that's true. But John is speaking of something he already saw. Well, what did John see? Turn to Matthew chapter 17. Let's take a look at this together. Matthew chapter 17. Yes, this is something we'll see in the future, no doubt about it. The whole fullness of God dwells in Jesus. We will experience that. We're anticipating that. We look forward to that. Maranatha. But what did he see? And this is just Peter, James, and John who experienced this, Matthew 17. Fascinating moment. I want you to also make a connection with me beforehand. I'm not going to spend time on it because I, I know it'll take a while. Peter will make reference of putting tents up, tabernacling. Interesting, the idea of the presence of the glory of God being there. Verse 1 of chapter 17, let's take a look at this. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, that inner circle. John, who writes our gospel, was there for this. His brethren led him up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Interesting, Moses is there, huh? It's fascinating. Talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. I bet he felt that way. And if you wish, I would like to make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he's probably thinking, and then maybe one for us too. We're going to get one later. He wants the tabernacle, he wants the fellowship, he wants to be there. Certainly he's considering the Feast of Tabernacles, that's what he's considering, but that idea of what we heard earlier in the tent of meeting. And so he was while he was still speaking, verse 5, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That's the glory of the Lord. Let me Before we finish this, let me just stop. And I think, do we tremble at the word of God? Do you tremble and get emotional when you think about the gospel and how you were saved and what you were saved from? Do you tremble at the idea of the power and might and wrath and judgment of God that has been satisfied for you? Does it bother you on the inside when others around you reject it? Do you tremble? We will be in the presence of God. You will experience what Isaiah experienced in Isaiah 6. And you will be ruined. But fortunately, and thanks be to God, Isaiah gave us a prediction that he was made clean because of the the redemption of Christ. And so are you. But do we tremble at this? Notice Jesus said, touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus alone. The glory of God revealed to them. Now, John is referencing the glory that he saw in the miracles. There's no doubt. There's no doubt that John is referencing in this passage the glory he's heard and saw in his words that were eternal, his love and kindness for the people around him. Absolutely, he was speaking of the fact that Jesus rose again, his ascension, all of this at play. But John is trying to tell you, I know who he is. And you need to know who he is. This is God incarnate. This is the God of the universe amongst us. Peter, who was also there, says this, as he's recalling this moment, he says this, and this is really going to bring it home for us today. We didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he's going to refer to the Mount of Transfiguration that I just read to you. Peter's also going to make reference to the other things that they learned. And I want you to notice, especially how he, he, he kind of formulates his words at the end, that there's something that we have today that we can share in as well. Notice this, verse 17. When he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We just read that. But then look at what he says. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Some think especially as we look at this in in context, that he's saying, we've got something even better. Actually, we have something even better now. Because Christ has left, and he said he had to leave. And remember, he told the apostles in the upper room, I have to leave, and I'm going to send you that paraclete. But he says, you've got my word, Jesus said, that heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. We have something even more sure, prophetic word, more fully confirmed, to which you will do, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Yesterday, as a group of men of us, we studied the word together, coming back to the emphasis of what is our grounded spot that we have to come back to? What is our anchor? What is our core? How do we get back on track when we, when we lose the fight today? When we fall? When we, when we mess up? When we, when we miss the mark? Well, we get back to the word This prophetic word, which as we see here, it's light. It gives light in a dark place that we do well to pay attention to. And you still have that today. As a matter of fact, you've got more than they did. Because of God's incredible grace and mercy, we have the entire complete, finished work of God sitting in our laps. And you probably have five of them at home. And for those of you who are a little bit more technical than me, you've got one on your phone or ten on your phone or device. Wow, what a blessing, and we are do well to pay attention to this. So John says we've seen his glory just as a reminder of what we've seen already. Remember what John says. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written in the book that we just reference, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Let's not get away from the, the main point. Why is this all here for us? Is it so we can feel good about our relationship with the Lord? Certainly, there's joy, contentment in walking with Jesus. This is about salvation, folks, and you should be in the business of proclaiming the truth based on what the wonder of who Jesus is. Because you know Him. Let's never forget what Jesus told the uh, the demoniac after being cured from a legion of demons. He wanted to go with Jesus, be with Him, be in His presence. Just as we think, we're, we're waiting for the Lord. But he said, no, no, you go home and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. This is, your plot. This is our plot in life. This is our, our driving force in life. This is what we're here to do, to make known what we know about Jesus in relationship with him so that others can believe. We use God's word, we use our testimony, what God has done to us, that, that my believing, they may have life in his name. That's what we're about. That's what we should be about. See, this is a great verse. And then finally here we see, only begotten. I heard this mentioned this morning, this monogoneos, singular uniqueness. This is what this means. Beloved like no other, it does not connote origin or birth or somehow creation, as some would say, but rather unique prominence. The same word is used when we think of Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was not his firstborn. Isaac wasn't wasn't the only son he had but he is, they use the same term there in Hebrews to talk about Isaac's relationship with Abraham. He was the chosen one. We have a very similar situation with Jacob and Esau. Esau is the older. Jacob is the one that was chosen to have the line go through him. This doesn't have anything to do with truly with a birth or with a birth order or somehow creation. We've already established he's equal with the father. That's not what this means. Only begotten is a, is a sign of respect, position. And John uses it. This is, the first, this is the first of four times that John uses this of Jesus Christ. Within the same wording, he talks about the deity of Christ. So let's not ever try to take a single phrase out of the passage and say, oh, this means this, when it clearly does not. So it doesn't mean anything with regards to creation. Jesus Christ was not created. He's the creator. So let us not forget that. The next section here is full of grace and truth. John 8, 58, Jesus says this of himself, and we're not going to have a lot of time, but if you happen to go there while I kind of prep this, go to Exodus. I told you we'd come here again. Go to Exodus 33 again. Maybe you kept your finger there knowing we're going to go back there. Jesus says of himself, this is one of these I am statements that we're going to cover in the next several weeks. Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, he clearly states, I am As Pastor mentioned earlier, we know what this meant to the Jews. They intended to stone him for this because he was making himself out to be God. He definitively was, and he did this over and over and over again. But the reason I go back to this Exodus 33 is because it's such a beautiful language here that God uses of himself when we look at this. As we think of this interaction between he and Moses, once again, I want you to Make, of, make think of this as yourself, you have this the delight and the joy of being in a relationship with Christ now if you 're in christ thirty four and thirty three eighteen and then we 'll go to thirty four so thirty three eighteen a little further from where we were, Moses said, "Please show me your glory, and God said, "I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will pro- proclaim before you." The name of the Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for a man shall not see me and live. We will see Jesus face to face. This is what Christ gave to us. But notice, grace is in here. My gracious mercy. Incredible. Skip ahead here. Verse 5 of 34. Don't want to spend a ton of time, but look at this. God the Father, God the Son are the same. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will, will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity Of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Full of grace and mercy, but also judge. And that's what our Savior is. He before Abraham was I am. When we read these words, these are the words of Jesus. The I am. The great I am. That's who he is. Okay, so that's the first verse. I told you there was a lot in the first verse. Lots of depth. We won't spend as much time on the second. John the Baptist, pastor referenced this earlier. Here's what we see. This came up earlier in John. I'm going to explain to you why John mentions it twice so frequently here in the first few verses. Here's what it says about John. John the Baptist. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me. Uh, Nasby says he has a higher rank than I. And it says, because he was before me, the Nasby, he existed before me. So who is this John the Baptist? Very quickly, won't spend much time on this. Well, the prophecies tell us he's the forerunner. In Isaiah 40, we see this, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert, a highway for our God. You can read the rest of it. How did he do that? He preached repentance. The kingdom of God is coming. We heard this also in the first hour. Those who were preaching a false gospel never mentioned sin and they never mentioned repentance. Christian, brother and sister, if you intend to deliver the gospel with love to people, you got to tell them the bad news before you tell them the good news. The bad news is they're in trouble. We're all in trouble. That's Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 4. We're in trouble. But God, being rich in mercy, you can't get to that until you get to the first part. You are doomed, and that's what he does. He makes the way straight. Malachi 3, my messenger, he's going to prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. This is the, 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 the kind of the forerunner, the, the, the guy who's preparing that way. This John the Baptist, extremely important. He's prophesied so they knew about him. And here's what John says about Jesus. So John the Baptist says about Jesus, Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal, I am not worthy to untie. He is greater than me. As John mentioned, he's greater than I am. His own words in verse 27 and 30, this is of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Later on, we'll see him say, I have to decrease and he has to increase. I'm just preparing the way. Now, why does he keep bringing up John? Why John the Baptist? Well, just very briefly, let me kind of explain what was going on here. John was written about 50 years, ballpark, after the ascension of Christ, most of the apostles were gone. And it's interesting how the Jewish people viewed John the Baptist. Josephus, who was not a believer, first century theologian for the Romans, but was Jewish, he kind of has some interesting things to say about John the Baptist. And the reason I bring this up is because John was using a tactic here where he was saying, listen, you respect John the Baptist, But you also know what John the Baptist said about Jesus, right? You you know what he was thinking when he was preaching and what he's making these statements. They were well known, is what I mean. Look at what even a non-believer later on says through the space and time, even 50 years, 100 years after Christ. Here's what Josephus says about John the Baptist. Now, some of the Jews thought that the destruction of Herod's army came from God and was a very just punishment for what he did against John called the Baptist, the dipper which is a funny name for him, but that's what he called him. For Herod had killed him, although he was a good man. Look at he says he's a good man. And he urged the Jews to exert themselves to virtue, both as to justice towards one another and reverence towards God. Now, that's true, repentance, but he was pointing them to Jesus. Notice how a non-believer can take even right words and twist them for their own needs. Reverence to God is certainly true. And having done so, joined together in washing, dipping, for immersion in water it was clear to him that he could not be used for the forgiveness of sins but a sanctification of the body and only if the soul was already thoroughly purified by right actions notice how he's twisting that but he, they held him up and when others massed about him for they were very greatly moved by his words Herod who feared that such strong influence over the people might carry to revolt for they seemed ready to do do this anything he would advise believed it much better to move now than later having to raise a rebellion and engage him in actions he would regret. And so John, out of Herod's suspiciousness, was sent in chains to Macarius, the fort previously mentioned, and they're put to death. But it was the opinion of the Jews that out of the retribution of John, God willed the destruction of the army so as to afflict Herod. People liked John. People thought John was of God. Notice even Jesus, when he had to kind of put the, uh, the, the scribes and the lawyers in place, he, he, he would bring up John. Well, what does John say? And they want to turn on John because everybody liked John. Well, John the apostle's doing the same thing. You know John the Baptist said he's the Messiah. You know John the Baptist said he's the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You know, even John says this. So this is what he's using this for. That's why he's mentioning it. That's why John is brought up here. Again, I didn't want to spend too much time, but I think that's why we see it so often, considering there's repetition in it. They knew who he, who he was dealing with. Even John said that. Sometimes we can use extra biblical text to help us defend the faith. But let me tell you something. As I teach my seniors, this is the defense you need right here. We don't want to hang in too much into the extra biblical texts. They're interesting. And that certainly we should always be ready to give a defense for the hope that we have within us. This is what you need. This is what saves people. Extra biblical texts do not. All right, let's move on. 16 and 17. Here's what it says. Grace and truth through Jesus. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Grace to the max. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Moses, we see, mentioned again. So you can see what he's doing Connecting the tabernacling, trying to take these Jews back to the idea of what was going on in the Old Testament that you can experience today with Christ, that we will future experience with Christ in glorification. But John is defending this idea and going back to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We are now in Christ because of this. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1 with me ephesians chapter 1 what i'm going to show you here is this grace and truth we're going to look at a couple different passages to bring us around to this is that this is this grace and truth through christ and for his glory it's for salvation grace without question is for salvation that is the primary purpose but this salvation brings god glory and us walking in this grace brings god glory And this is where it really hammers home to us, and where we're going to kind of bring this around today. So you should be in Ephesians chapter 1, and let me get there, now you beat me, Ephesians 1. And as we look at Ephesians 1, I want you to just kind of consider this. We're going to be in Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, I'm going to jump out into 1 Thessalonians for a second, but then we'll be right back into it, so just stay here. Ephesians 1, 5 through 8, look at what we see here. Keep in mind, we already looked at this. Ephesians 1, 5 through 8, ahead on the screen to to bring us in. So I'm just going to read it through one more time. Keeping this to connect the dots. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. To the praise of his glorious grace. This is the reason. Then with which he blessed us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Now you see it really coming around. You see it, see it coming to bear, right? Grace twice, grace and truth built into this. His glory built into this, verse 8, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Incredible. In verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The mystery of his will is no longer a mystery, It's there for us. There's no deception. There's no confusion with the Lord. It's right there for us. We're not not worried about, have we gotten this right? The gospel is clear in the word. Skip to chapter 2 very quickly. Let's just take a look at verse 7 very quickly. So we saw the purpose is salvation right off the bat. He lavished this upon us. But verse 7 of chapter 2, which you're there by now. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace... In kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. By grace for salvation. I referenced Ephesians 2 earlier. You were dead in your trespasses. You had no way out. And you were doing what everybody else was doing. One through three. But God, being rich in mercy, verse 4, it's right in front of you. Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And notice, that's leading us into verse 7. Okay, so salvation. This grace is because of salvation. But it's also for his glory. You can stay here. I'm going to come back to Ephesians in just a moment. Second Thessalonians chapter 1 says this. To this end, what end? The context is Christ coming in judgment. Christ coming for his own. The idea that when he comes on that day, he will be gloried by in his saints. That's verse 10, just before the passage I have up here. Gloried in those who are marveling at his coming. That's us if you're in Christ. To that end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power. There is a resolve in God's salvation, this grace, that isn't just pardon, it is now walking in the truth. That grace is every step we take, the eternal steps we take that have an impact on the kingdom because he is doing this through us. Why? Look at verse 12. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified. In who? in you wow what a responsibility right step away from that for a second he's giving you this that you're going to represent him you're his ambassador he's making his appeal through you but that you can bring him glory in walking with him and then you and him according to the grace of our god and the lord jesus christ notice this is all done through grace this isn't even you this is you yielding to the spirit within you if you're in christ to do what He says. Our worthy walk that is accomplished through this grace allows God to be glorified. Not you to be glorified, not anyone else, not some speaker, singer. It's for God to be glorified. He can, he's glorified through us, and you're still in Ephesians. Go back to chapter 1. I'm going to bring this up for you. 1, 12 through 14. Once again, what do we see here? That God's glory is the ultimate and eternal purpose of the whole idea of redemption. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ may be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And this is, notice, for his glory, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. I'll tell you what, every single believer that knows what he's been saved from and what he's been saved for understands that God holds his salvation. And it's a great thing because not only could I not earn it and get it, I couldn't keep it. As a matter of fact, if it were up to me, I'd have lost it 17 times today already. I drove a long way to get here. I'll let you fill in the blanks. But that's not how it works. To the praise of His glory, He holds on to it. The Holy Spirit is your guarantee and seal. Man, what a great way to live as Christians. Nowhere in God's Word does it say you're going to get wealthy and successful and where, where it says that everything you want, everything in your fleshly heart that you desire will you get. But here's what the Bible does, does definitively preach. You will have contentment and peace walking with Jesus in the middle of his will. And this could be in the middle of the flames. And yet that's what you're promised because he holds you, and he holds you for his purpose to the praise of his glory. Beautiful. And let's finish this up make him known. You already know. You could finish this sermon for me. You know what I'm going to do with this. Making him known. God made him known. We're to make him known. You know where I'm going. But here's what the passage says. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. I like the Nasby here. Some of you have that in your, in your lap. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father. There is an extreme intimacy here. They are right in the middle of each other. They are right there. There is an intimacy here that is, is really given in the words. The only one, God himself, equal, the exact imprint as we saw earlier today. The exact imprint. As we go forward, Hebrews 1, the author of Hebrews, I'm going to show you the author of Hebrews, whoever that might be. All of these are God. Peter and then Paul, all having the same sentiment. There's a commonality to what they're writing. Notice what what the author of Hebrews says. This is Hebrews 1, then I'll skip to 12. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We read this earlier, but look at, as we go forward, chapter 12, and here's what it says. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Both of these, right hand of the majesty, right hand of God, equal sitting. This is what he had, remember. And he didn't hold on to it for us and for his glory. Because of his mercy and his grace, he never lost it, and he is properly sitting there now. The author of Hebrews understands that. And he was writing this and was compelled to write this because of the false claims that that the author of Hebrews is attacking that somehow God is equal to angels, or they're equal to him. There's nothing equal to our Savior, God incarnate, the Almighty, the Great I Am. Peter says the same thing. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers have been subjected to him. He's no equal to him. Peter says it. Paul says it in Ephesians 1. Notice this. In verse 19, I've got 20 up there. This immeasurable greatness of his power to us who believe according to the work of his great might. That's verse 19. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. We know where he's at. We know who he is. This is who you serve. And I'm going to bring this right back to this. This is who you're supposed to know and who's supposed to know you. So the term exegesis comes from this. To make him known. We see this, uh, this particular Greek word is a word that represents that whole phrase made him known. All that Jesus said, did, accomplished, lived out, explains, interprets, defines, and enlightens what God the Father does and is. Uh, some of you ask, How, why do you use so much scripture? That's why, because that's what explains it. How would I know what this means if God doesn't tell me what it means? How could I possibly understand any of it if I didn't have the full context of it? Just imagine, you've seen people do this, taking verses out of context and using them for their own purposes. We know we don't do that. Exegesis is a critical explanation and interpretation of a text, especially scripture. This is the process of discovering the original and intended meaning of a passage of scripture. And we see this throughout the scriptures. Jesus did it. Look at what he does within, on the road to Emmaus. We know this well, but look at what he does. Even Jesus did this, who is the Word. He says this. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, and all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And look at what he does. He doesn't just talk. He tells them, this is in the Old Testament. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus used Scripture to explain Scripture. Jesus used the Word of God to underst- help others to understand it. And you need to do the same, Christian. It's not the only time we see it. We see Philip doing the same thing with the Ethiopian. And this is a miraculous event. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, Do you understand what you're reading? And he says, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And then we go through the process. I skip a little bit to verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, that means that he just began with this scripture and went to other scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. How how do you do this right? You use this incredible book that's in front of you. You need to know it, memorize it, hide it in your heart, know where to go, write down notes, Get practice in this so that when you're ready, you can make that, when God gives you the opportunity, that divine appointment, you're ready to give a defense with Scripture. That's what you do. And you should be a Berean. So when we see this, the Bereans did this even when they heard Paul teaching. What did they do? They received the word with all eagerness, but look at what they do. Examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. I encourage all of my students, don't let anybody, me or anyone else, speak to you about God's word without having it in front of you. You need to see it. Is that true? Is that what it is? So as we bring this back around, how does this apply to us? Well, John 14, we see this very clearly. This is a struggle that even the apostles had. Make, him, make the Father known to us, Jesus. That's what Philip is saying to him in verse 6. And keep in mind, this is incredible. Jesus has just got done explaining to them the rapture in John 14, 1 through 4 then I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me. And I, this is encouraging. You should, This is awesome. But that's not what we see them doing. Their reaction is, yeah, but show us the Father. Where are you going? I don't know. And he says, if you'd known me, this is just ahead of this in verse 7, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough. I have been with you so long. You still don't know me, Philip. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. This is exactly what Jesus is telling us. If you know the word of God and what it says about Jesus, you begin to know him more intimately. And as you study the word and the Holy Spirit helps you to understand it, there is a direct connection and you are one with him as we see in John 17. And I won't spend a lot of time on this, but look at verse 13, or three rather, in the high priestly prayer. Look at what he says. This is eternal life, that they know you. Jesus speaking to the Father, the only true God, and what? Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Know him, if you know Jesus, you know the Father. If you know Christ intimately, And you know his word intimately. You begin to know him. And you can do this. You can do what Paul did. And I'm landing the plane right here. But I don't account my life as anything of value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's his life goal. That's what he does. Now, he's speaking to elders here. He's speaking to believers in Ephesus. And he tells them, I I haven't shrunk back from any of this. I haven't held this back from you that I am teaching in public, he says. This is earlier in the passage in verse 20. And that I preach repentance and grace. But this is what I am about. I make it known. He says it similarly here. I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and him crucified. I know him and he knows me. And this is what he told me to tell you. You need salvation in his name. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of what? Knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. So Christian, I'm going to challenge you here. You have to have the same definitive job Paul, Peter, John had. Make him known. The Father's made the Son known to you and you know he is God incarnate and he is the only answer for the sins of mankind. He is the only name given among men by which we must be saved. It's just Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. What an incredible job you have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that you've given us in the word. As long as it can be, we know this is such good text, such a great challenge from John for us today, that we see the consistency in scripture. I pray that you'll motivate us, challenge us, a, number one, that we understand our sin, that we're sinners that need a Savior. For any in here who have not put their faith in your Son, that today is the day that they repent and believe. And we know that if you draw someone to yourself, if they call on your name, you promise to save them. But for those of us who do know you, that we make you known to everyone around us through the, what we do, walking in grace in every step, and proclaiming the absolute, clean, unadulterated truth of the gospel untainted by man, clearly from your word. We love you and we thank you for what you've given us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.